0: Dave, last year you went to America with a very important question on your mind. Um, It was, how to become a president? How do you become the president of the
1: United States? (laughs) Well, I think the really interesting thing about it is um, it's totally different. It is totally different to how you become, say, Prime Minister in the United Kingdom. Um, And there's this, you you, you kind of uncover when you look into it, this whole story which relates to a whole load of different places, so very kind of specific geographies. Um, And a whole load of different processes that come together to just tell this wonderful soap opera, quite frankly, about how people first get the nomination of their party to be president uh, and then go on and, and, and run their general election campaign. So that's what I was really interested in. I think it's a wonderful story that emerges from this. And why I was going out there was to try and create a podcast around, you know, exactly the different steps of how you become president. Um, to give people really the the kind of background understanding of all the different bits and how they interweave so that they can read for themselves uh, the wonderful kind
0: of stories that come out of it. I've now completely and utterly made sense of the places that you went to. You went to New Hampshire, Iowa, South Carolina and D.C. Um, How long did you spend over in the States? How did you get to those various different states? And tell us the reasons why those areas are so important to telling that story.
1: So wasn't there a huge amount of time, it was only about 10 days, and this was a couple of weeks before, before the, um, in kind of October time, so just before the election. Um, and the reason I picked those is, is, is because these places are so pertinent really to the, to the story of how you become president so um, Iowa for example is the first in the nation first place in the country that votes in the Iowa caucus um, for people to select their party nominee so I went to Iowa and spoke to both people in Des Moines very kind of urban area and then out into these cornfields that just go on for miles and miles and miles and talking to the, the rural farmers uh, of Iowa um, the second place in the nation that votes traditionally is New Hampshire, very different state to Iowa uh, on the east coast, renowned for being kind of socially liberal but economically quite conservative. And there I went to an incredible building um, which is an old uh, hotel that they're doing up called Dixfield Notch. And the reason I went there is in New Hampshire and um, they have a rule which says you can close the polling station if a hundred percent of the people in that polling district have voted already. Um, and this is such a tiny tiny place that there's only 10 people or 11 people or so who are on the voter register so what they do by tradition is they open the poll at one minute past midnight and everybody lines up and votes all 11 people get there and vote and then they close it at three minutes past midnight and that way they can announce their result first before anybody else in the state and a huge number of camera crews go and cover it so it's it's called the first in the state of the first in the nation. So that was a really interesting bit about New Hampshire. Um, south Carolina is the third one that, that, that the candidates have to stump to. So, I mean, if you imagine if you're trying to build an electoral coalition, you go to rural Iowa, then you go to the kind of eastern seaboard, New Hampshire, then you go down to the deep south in South Carolina looking at the issues around identity politics and race politics and we actually start the story there because um, when I was younger than I am now, uh, sadly, I I, um, went out and did some volunteering on the Obama campaign in 2008 and the reason I went out was because I heard him give his victory speech in South Carolina and so I found out where it was he'd given this speech in a conference center uh, in Columbia. So, I went there to kind of meet the guys who ran that event it had such a big impact on my life. And then you can't not really finish out going to Washington, D.C., and, and see the, you know, both the, the physical but also the kind of social structure of what the new president is going to walk into. Um, and it becomes particularly interesting with someone like Donald Trump, of course, who's never held elective office before. And that, that sense of an outsider coming to Washington was something I kind of you know, your experience as, as, as being an Englishman abroad there. Um, so I like to think it gave us a really good oversight. I think we've got some really good bits of the story coming together through those four particular places.
0: So obviously going to New Hampshire, Iowa, and South Carolina, um, you are trodding the trail, as you said, of US potential presidential candidates um, on the primary trail. Um, what specifically did you learn uh, maybe about the 26th election going to those places. What did you learn
1: about America? What did you uncover? I, the, the really interesting thing for me, I think from, from kind of our point of view, looking at the story from a British point of view, trying to understand it, is I think a lot of us have a view of the US which is based primarily on going over there. And, and when British people tend to go, they will go to New York first and foremost, possibly Orlando second, possibly if they go back a third time, California. And actually, that is a, that's a really unreflective view of vast, vast swathes of the country. A lot of it is rural, a lot of it is poor. Um, I don't think that's an image we always kind of necessarily get on our, on our TV sets or the experiences we have when we travel over there. So it's really interesting to engage with that. And in relation to the 2016 election, what it taught me was, you know, I, I wouldn't um, lie about this and, and, and claim credit for uh, prescience, which I didn't have, but I would just say that I was far less surprised by the Trump victory than some people, where I still thought Hillary Clinton was going to win, but you could see it building, you could kind of see it coming. So you said that you felt, um, and you weren't
0: surprised by the by the Trump victory. Did you encounter any of the uh, any of the respective party teams on the ground? How were they trying to get the vote out? How were they canvassing for their candidates?
1: Yeah, we did. Um, so when we were in Des Moines, we went to see Bernie Sanders speaking on behalf of uh, Hillary Clinton. He was at Drake University there, so he was obviously sent out to encourage young people and get out the vote there. But what I found really particularly interesting about that was they did this event at like 11 o'clock in the morning on a kind of a, a Tuesday. And it had nothing to do really at all with being a rally in terms of... Getting undecided there you could tell that the only reason they were doing it was they packed it with you know die-hard Democrats And that way that evening they got non-stop news coverage across Iowa about Bernie Sanders was in the state So I think the interesting thing about US geography compared to British geography is because it's so vast What you're trying to do more than anything else is playing into local media markets Which we just don't really have in the I mean we have BBC London and BBC East Anglia and stuff but It's not quite the same, I don't think. So it was really interesting to observe how the campaign would use surrogates, go into an area, but not actually use them to kind of talk to real voters or real undecided voters, but use them in a way of, of getting into local media markets to try and hit as many you know, TV stations as they can ahead of the big day.
0: So obviously with the the victory of Donald Trump, um, what he did was tap into blue-collar America. Tell us exactly where you saw this kind of nascent kind of Trumpism.
1: I saw it in a, in a whole number of places. I think the one that stands out for me the most was, um, again, when I was in Iowa, I, I decided to drive out of Des Moines, which is a very urban and quite liberal city, down to a small town about an hour and a half come southwest of it called Creston, which is a proper um kind of blue collar town and on the way there i, I needed some petrol and so had to wait and i was pulled into petrol what turned don't, out... don't you mean gas well uh, exactly gas yeah and the, i had that problem at the gas station needless to say as well um but i pulled in there and well, it, you it had gas Edinburgh. at the gas station well i said to him if you've got any petrol and he looked at me like i was from another planet no i, I, I thought i, I thought you were
0: telling was. me that you're in you know in this in the sealed confines of the car you had a lot of gas
1: and that would have been terrible oh, right. for, your, for your passenger <laughs> yeah, No, mercifully, we're right on that front. Although, uh, when you're in the south, they did ask me what flavour burrito I wanted for breakfast, which is a question I never thought I'd get asked. My <laughs> <laughs> so, I went into this casino, which was there as well, and talking to some of the staff who were in there, um, and all of them just saying, you know, you say to them who you're voting for, and they'd they'd look at you and they'd say it consciously quieter than how they were talking to you before. They'd say, uh, you know, I'm I'm I'm, I'm going to vote for Donald Trump. I think he's what we need.
0: Obviously, one of the kind of doyens, one of the icons of America, of Americans, blue collar, is Bruce Springsteen. Tell us the reason why you decided to go for the track "The
1: Rising." Well, I, I mean, it's a fascinating track. I think that one. He was—he actually wrote it um, on the back of 9/11. One of the images he said that really stayed with him was this idea of a firefighter running into the flames and then you know, not being able to see behind him or ahead of him and I think in many ways it is a country still that is trying to deal with the fallout of that and I, and, and my view of it is that many people, um, as much as you might dislike some of their politics and some of their sentiment, are trying to work through a whole series of issues which um, immigration and, and the effects of 9-11 also have brought up for them and responding to it in different ways. I think it's a country that is uh, you know, asking itself some very, very serious questions about how it responds to the changing nature of its role in the world, but also um, moving away from uh, you know communities which for, for a very long time have been localised, uh, have been a fundamental part of their economy, now are becoming the middle class. Um, so what I also like about that song is I think it's, it's, it's quite hopeful, and I think both sides felt in their candidates, less so the Democrats, when Bernie Sanders ceased to be a part of it. But within the Trump side, I think it's easy for us to forget sometimes that it felt like a rising. It felt quite joyous. Um, I don't want to use the word progressive, but for people, on, people who were going out to vote for him, he did so with a huge amount of enthusiasm. It wasn't done with a kind of a cynicism that you might associate with his politics. So I'm a huge Bruce Springsteen fan. I think he is uh, a, a wonderful poet when he, when he talks about you know, the American working and middle class. Uh, and it just seemed particularly apt and, and, and certainly reminds me of a lot of the people I met on that trip.
2: I can't see nothing in front of me Can't see nothing coming up behind Make my way through this darkness I can't feel nothing but this chain that binds me Lost track of how far I've gone How far I've gone How high I've climbed On my back's of 60 pound stone on the shoulder half mine
0: traveling to New Hampshire to Iowa South Carolina and then ending up in DC um, I suppose you kind of encountered a lot of regional music um whilst you were playing the radio um could you tell us a little bit about that Dave
1: I did, yeah. I mean, um, I spent a lot of time in the car, driving around. Um, Do you know what? Not only the music, but the the talk shows over there are incredible as well. You know, something that we don't quite have the the similar side of in the UK. And then a lot of religious music that comes in from that as well. Um, But it's standard pop music as well. I mean, one of the songs that I remember that was played regularly when I was there at the time was uh, the relatively newish still um, Pink song. uh, called fire or so i can't remember precisely whether that always makes me think of it as well um but i think one of the great things about being in the u.s and and driving to these different places it gives you a lot of time in the car uh and preparing a good kind of soundtrack for that really heightens the experience of it
0: before we went into a break you talked about discovering or uncovering interesting questions about identity politics um, could you go into a little bit more detail? Um, how exactly are you defining that?
1: Well, what I just think is really interesting about it, and you can you can see it in different ways in both the Trump campaign and the Hillary campaign is I think people's politics more and more is shaped um less by the kind of standard uh, deviations of class and things like that, and the different aspects of themselves, so you know not only their race but their their sexuality, their gender identity. Um, amongst the youth vote particularly, their their conception of other people their age, and uh, casting their votes in, um, or rather on the basis of how they wish to relate to other people. So some people's conception of identity politics is my identity is something that I need to protect and therefore I need to close myself and my community off from others. Whereas other people's sense of identity is one which is based on, um, you know, liberation and being embraced and accepted by others and therefore is far more outward looking. And um, so I thought one of the really interesting things about the election was it wasn't the economy stupid, it was in many, many ways, how do these people relate to my identity um, as an individual and, and how does kind of society accept that?
0: So I know that on your American Odyssey, you uh, you, you bumped into somebody who's pretty important in the relatively recent history of American politics somebody that who stood uh,
1: to become uh, president. Who was that and how did you get to meet him? So we spoke to Michael Jakarkis, who was uh, for a long time the governor of Massachusetts and then ran in the 1988 uh, election. He was a Democratic candidate who ran against um, George Bush Sr. and lost that year. And he is a, he is a fascinating guy. That I don't know, you probably remember, Royfield, but, um, That election was fascinating for a whole number of issues. One of them particularly was this famous Willie Horton ad I do remember. Um, was, you know, kind of just the most kind of blatant example of racist campaigning. I think you'll ever see with this story about this um, guy who was on temporary release from prison uh, and went out and raped and murdered somebody. And subsequently, they ran this whole video footage of you know, black men walking in and out of prison and looking up at the camera and making eye contact. And then he was asked about it in the debate and was supposedly gave. Uh, a very you know overly calm and robotic answer to it so he's a fascinating guy I was very lucky I wrote to him um, uh, and asked to speak to him and he agreed to agreed to have a chat with me about it and we covered a huge number of things And I really left that interview more than and they were all really enjoyable ones to do but with him just thinking well what what I lost the history that man really was in many ways um, but he's still very involved in politics particularly again yeah, in teaching universities and, and, and getting young people actively involved
0: so, you went to America, um, you saw America Real America, um, you felt Trump coming, uh, and uh, you kind of came back. Um, tell me about the podcast that, that you put together on the back of this.
1: So it's going to have 10 episodes, I think. It's going to focus on all the different key parts of the story, so we'll have one on the Iowa caucus, what that looks like, one on the New Hampshire primary, what that's like, one on South Carolina. One on the debates, which I think is going to be particularly interesting. How do people prepare for the debates? One on the convention um, and a whole series of things through to through to the election itself and, and you know the ground game and how the campaign organises across the country on the day. Um, they're going to be, I don't know, we're looking at the length of them at the minute because I think there's some really interesting detail and stories to tell here. And it is an interesting question about when's the best time to bring this out as well. I don't want it to... Be something that uh, we wait for the next election cycle for. I think it's a story that people can enjoy at any any time really, um, and particularly with this current president and the way things are going, we might necessarily not have to wait until uh, four years time until we get another new one. Dave, quickly,
0: just before we go, you can tell us the name of this podcast so people can get. Go- go up and find it what's it going to be called
1: I can it's simply called How to Become President of the United States um, produced by myself and my my friend with E14 Productions and I very much hope that when it's done and dusted and finally ready Royal well, Field I can come back and talk to you about it a bit again and put it out there Listen, I look
0: forward to that Dave Smith thank you for coming on to Friday 15 thanks so much perfect that was good man oh, was that alright yeah, a bit rambling yeah, points, yeah. But... no shut your cake Cole.